Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. Just a quick reminder that this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. We are so thankful to our patrons of the Full Bloom podcast to help us create resources for a diverse audience. If you're moved by our mission at the Full Bloom Project and find our work valuable, please consider becoming an official patron to keep the Full Bloom podcast going strong. And as a new benefit, patrons can submit their body-positive parenting questions to be answered in a future podcast episode in Season 3. You write in with whatever body-positive parenting question is on your mind, and we find a qualified researcher or expert to respond to your question on the show. Become a patron now to have your body-positive parenting question expertly answered at fullbloomproject.com slash patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast, episode number 46. We're so excited this week to be joined by actually an old friend, Laura Moretti-Reese, a board-certified sports dietitian who specializes in sports performance-based nutrition, as well as eating disorders in athletes. Laura also happens to be a former coworker from when we all worked together at an eating disorder treatment center. So we're both really excited for a chance to chat. We've had listeners in the past write in wanting to know how to help kids navigate the intense world of sports and athletics while retaining a really healthy, positive relationship with their bodies. If you're interested in hearing a prior conversation about sports and exercise, definitely check out episode 21, where we talk to Sasha Gorell about her research and work with female athletes and how to help kids learn to love movement. But we felt like there was even more to cover here and thought Laura would have some wonderful insights to continue to talk about risk and prevention in young athletes. Laura currently works as a dietitian in the Division of Sports Medicine and the Female Athlete Program at Boston Children's Hospital. She's the co-chair for the Sport and Exercise Special Interest Group of the International Academy of Eating Disorders, and she's the consulting dietitian for the Boston Ballet Company and Schools. On top of all that, she's also an avid skier, competitive triathlete, and a Boston Marathon qualifier and finisher. She's pretty awesome. She's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, she's pretty. She's also just like a cool lady to get a drink with. That's right. So, Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here, guys. We're very happy to have an old friend here joining us today. (laughs) So we, we know all about you, but our audience doesn't. So can you start just by telling us a little bit about yourself and the work you do with sports performance nutrition and treating eating concerns in athletes? 
Absolutely. Yes. Sorry. That's, it's a mouthful, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so, so yes, it's wonderful to be here. And again, yes, with, with colleagues I've worked with um, for years. So my name is Laura Moretti, Reese, new last name. I'm based out of Boston and I work out of Boston Children's Hospital in sports medicine and orthopedics um, and more especially in our female athlete program where we really focus on the special needs of female athletes, although we also see males. But a lot of the negative effects on health and performance that come as a result of a caloric deficit. Uh, and I also run a small private practice here in Boston and came to Boston through way of New York, which is how I know you lovely ladies. So mm-hmm. I've been working in eating disorders for just about 10 years now and eating disorder and sport for about the same amount of time. Yeah. We met at our, my first internship. Yes. Yeah. I think we were both interns at that right. point. Right. We were we? both. Yeah. You were an intern too. Yeah. So um, we've, we've been through it all together, but you've become so specialized in athletes and that's what we have so many parents who have young people that they want to participate in sport or are participating in sport. And we are just really excited to talk with you about your particular expertise and how to be preventative, um, but also careful um, and what, what these parents really need to know. So just like from the top, what benefits and opportunities do young people gain from participating in sports? Sure, sure. Um, A lot. There's a great deal of research out there as well that supports this. I mean, from a physiological standpoint, exercise helps with the healthy growth and development of bones, uh, muscles, ligaments, and tendons. So when a young individual is really developing their bone density, having some of that impact activity can actually help strengthen those bones. And it does also strengthen all those connective tissues as well. So there is that very physiological benefit. And also there've been shown to be many psychological benefits. Leadership qualities have been linked to individuals that have participated in sport. They've done some really cool studies looking at CEOs of of corporations and just looking at participation in sport. And they found a very high correlation there. Children also learn teamwork, perseverance. It can also help with concentration. So even carrying over to them in, in their school environments. Um, and self-confidence is a, is a huge one. It's a very well-studied topic, too. So just to sort of give you an overview. Um, yeah. And what about um, playing a sport helping with body image? What have you helping or where have you found or what do you know about it being helpful to body image? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and a word I like to use a lot with my clients is this idea of, of strength and feeling strong. And I, and I do use that over and over in our sessions because i really think when when a child is learning a new skill and you know they're learning to you know kick a ball or run around on a field and they're they're building that self confidence i mean we know that that links into how they're feeling in their own bodies too and i do think really you know I've played sports my entire life too. And, and I have such memories of, of even being, you know, a young child and sort of like mastering a skill or getting out there. And, you know, it's not all about scoring the goal, but um, I do have some memories of that. But um, yeah, I really think that idea of like these kids feeling strong in their bodies and being able to learn new skills and really translate that can really tie into that self-confidence, which then can sort of leach over into that, that area of body confidence as well. Yeah, and I think about how on the show we've talked so much about the protective factor of feeling aware of your body as an instrument and, you know, your own competence and capacity to do things. And in its best 
outcome, and I know we're about to get to the some of the risks, but in its best outcome, oh my gosh, the confidence. I know we see it with our own kids on the playground when, when they finally master the monkey bars to feel strong. It's less about what I look like and more about how I feel like I did this and also I am getting stronger. My body can do this. And how critical being able to be aware of your body's function, especially if you, you know, have an able body. That that's such a nice thing for building positive body image. But we know that there are lots of risks that come along with participation in sports and athletes, which is often where you come into the picture. So can you talk to us about what unique body image concerns and even struggles with food that a young athlete might be more susceptible to? Sure, sure. So again, research really does support the fact that athletes, I mean, particularly more, this is more so, It's it's been much more studied in the older populations, more sort of elite athletes. But we do know that athletes are generally at a higher risk for developing a disordered relationship with food or, or an eating disorder. Um, and I can certainly speak more to that. But yeah, I think, you know, I do think one of the biggest things that can contribute to that is, I mean, we always do worry about some of the the more aesthetic sports. And I think there's a lot of talk now in the sports medicine world too about early sports specialization. Um, And we're, it's actually really something that we do not recommend. Um, But I think a lot of times, I mean, I've seen kids as young as like seven or eight that are spending hours a day, you know, whether it's, I'm thinking of sports like figure skating, dance, gymnastics. And I think it's sort of a lot of times when it crosses over between this is less of sort of a fun recreational activity um, to more of that, these kids that are put on these kind of elite tracks at a very young age. And I think that the pressures in some of those aesthetic worlds we do a lot of education with with coaches, and, and I mean, I'm not I'm not here to knock on coaches because some of the most influential people in my life have been coaches. But there can be these pressures around the physical aesthetics and that being linked to being strong in a sport. Again, particularly in that aesthetic realm. So I do think when these kids are put in these very high pressure situations where it is competitive and there's such a major focus on the body, I think that those are the sports that we see a much higher risk. Um, so specifically sort of dance, gymnastics, and figure skating seem to be three of the biggest um, where we can see those body image concerns develop at an earlier age for kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about my daughter who did gymnastics last year. And, and one of the things that I was most concerned about was they had like one week of talking about food in their gymnastics class. And I was furious. I was like, this, I'm not, I don't want you to talk about food with her. That's not what, that's not what she's here to do for one hour, once a week as a five-year-old. And the lesson was about good and bad. And I just was so upset about that. And it makes me kind of wonder about what you see in your practice regarding when the conversation about food and eating begins to enter the sport itself, the sport experience. Yep. No, that's a, that's a great point. And that I, I also, when I hear of your, your five-year-old, you know, is going to gymnastics, which is like, should be such a great fun activity for, for kids to participate in, right? These sports aren't inherently bad 
you know, activities for kids to participate in. But that is kind of, uh, I also feel equally a bit horrified by that um, because I've spoken with kids not as young as five. That to me feels way too early. And especially to be using those terms of good and bad. I mean, you know, I'm very much an all foods fit dietitian. And and I've spoken, I would say the youngest groups I have spoken to have sort of been in that like the eight to 10, unless a parent brings their child into my office earlier, uh, just for a one-on-one session. But I do think just with the focus on food and our culture and, and diet culture and the eat this, not that, unfortunately, I do think that it's entering the realm at a much earlier age. You know, these kids that are in kindergarten, first grade, and that's why, you know, I think as a parent, it's taking a look at what is being presented to these kids. Like gymnastics should purely be about fun, right? Especially at that age. And if you're going to teach kids about, you know, what's a good snack to have before you come, you know, or you need to drink some water, it's really big basics. But I think at that age, like it's just, it's just too soon to be introducing that type of knowledge. So I would say the earliest I see it is typically around that eight years old seems to be more common. Oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's happening all the time, right? Like even in schools, this comes up a lot. Unintended consequences of well-meaning people teaching quote health (laughs) or nutrition or nutrition. Right. right? You know, when, when you were talking earlier about some of those like higher risk sports, I think you mentioned gymnastics, figure skating, dance. I also started thinking about, I mean, maybe not for young children, but certainly older kids that might be getting into wrestling, for example, like for boys. And how in some, I mean, that's one sport that comes to mind where weights and like weight class is actually like part of it. <laughs> it's, it's sort of, it's not even so much aesthetics, but more in terms of those like classes. So, you know, I'm just sort of folding that in here. And I'm wondering if you have seen sports play a role in triggering or even maintaining disordered eating, because we really want our parents to be aware of these particular risks and work to prevent this from happening if we possibly can. So yeah, what have you seen? Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a really, really interesting question because I think, you know, there's always this question, you know, the chicken or the egg with, with sports, right? Did the eating disorder break, you know, was that a, an effect of the sport or, you know, vice versa? So, you know, and there has been some research on this topic as well. And it, a lot of it shows that if a child has a predisposition, that eating disorder may have, may develop with or without the incorporation of a sport. So in some instances, the sport can actually help you know, maybe strengthen that body confidence and, you know, work on that self-confidence and all those positive factors really play into helping a child not go down that road. That being said, I do think that there are certainly some of these higher risk sports. I mean, being, I have a role, I work with us rowing and we have a lot of rowing here in Boston. So lightweight rowing tends to be another one of those sports. And, Mm. um, it typically, there is some lightweight rowing in high school, but we, we see more of it on the collegiate and the, the elite level. But I do think if someone is, I mean, there are instances certainly where an individual who potentially has some disordered behaviors that are already in place could potentially choose a sport that will perpetuate those behaviors, right? So we might see someone getting into running because of the fact that they know it might help them burn more calories. You know, they want to achieve a certain aesthetic. So I don't think it's fair to say that everyone who chooses to, you know, wrestle or run or be a dancer is someone who has these behaviors that are present. But I do think sometimes we have to have a conversation with our athletes about, you know, their relationship with their sport and when they chose to participate it. And is this really, 
you know, the best realm for you to be participating in. And we certainly have athletes that we say like, you know, through a lot of discussion and, you know, working collaboratively with, um, with their therapist or psychologist to really say like, this is something that we don't think is going to be helpful or beneficial for you. It's really a more function of your eating disorder. I think this is a call to all of us to think about the genetic body blueprint of our children. And we talk a lot about that on the podcast and thinking about like, if you do have those genetic risk factors in your family, for example, for eating disorder, or if you know that your child has certain traits like perfectionistic traits, even just going back to some of those more aesthetic sports, thinking about like if you do have a child that their body seems to be naturally sitting in a higher place and that the goal here, of course, is to let their body do its thing. But if you notice that that child is really interested in classical ballet or figure skating or gymnastics, but that their body type is not one that will be naturally suited to that, that so much body modification would need to happen in order to meet those ideals. How you get into that conversation with your kids seems complicated, but that feels like I want to put that on everybody's radar, like to just be thinking about the real limitations that some some of our body types just have, that they're not meant to look a certain way. I think that's a great point. And I do think, you know, it would be interesting is what, you know, there is obviously with the, um, you know, health at every size body movement now and to, to see like, does the culture shift at all? Why does someone need to be X, Y, or Z size or shape to excel at something? Because we know that's not what defines, you know, a wonderful dancer or a great figure skater. You know, I just, I feel like it would be interesting. Is there a culture shift that eventually happens? Who, who knows, you know? Hopefully. I think we have a long way to go, but it's definitely worth like pushing, kicking, kicking the can yes. as far forward as we can and, get it. And I actually recently saw, I don't know what her following's like, but there's like body positive ballerina. I don't, I think that's her hashtag. I mean, she's like, this is a social media influencer who's up on point, has, has sort of beautiful lines, and you can clearly has a beautiful ballet technique, and is definitely in a bigger body and is is putting it out there. So I, I like that. I mean, I think that kind of helps us segue into this conversation. You had mentioned caloric deficit and how we need to be mindful as parents of kids kind of in all ages, like what we do need to be considering when it comes to feeding kids who are playing sports. So I'm wondering if you could just describe a little bit more about what you mean by caloric deficit um, and help parents understand how to be really careful of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, to kind of simplify that concept of, we use the term energy availability. So basically we want to make sure that an individual is taking in enough energy or calories. I I like to prefer the word energy over calories um, to cover their expenditures, which it's activities of daily living. It is sport expenditures. And then also let's not forget all these beautiful little humans are growing. So that is such a huge caloric need from the body. And I'm, and I'm sure, I know you guys are both parents. So when your kids are going through a growth spurt or, you know, they often, they're hungrier, they need more nutrition. So basically getting in enough nutrition to cover all of the needs of the body is, you know, having someone be in that nice energy balance. If someone is falling below, let's say they are eating the same and all of a sudden they are playing soccer five days a week they will need to increase what they're eating in order to cover more of what they're expending, right? So it's kind of a simple, quote unquote, simple math equation. 
So what I see a lot of sometimes is kids are brought into my office because they are falling off the growth chart. And a lot of times these are children that they're at a young age and they might be, gosh, some of these kids' schedules blow my mind. Um, I don't think it was like this when, when we were kids, but they might be going to two different practices on one day. So it is so hard for them to get in the amount of calories that they need to really cover those expenditures. So I think as a parent, I mean, then that's one thing a parent can look out for, you know, and when they go to their annual pediatrician visit, is my child still continuing to trend on their growth curve? Because we do see it time and time and time again that these kids are starting to fall off just because they're burning more than they're taking in. So I think one of the easiest ways, again, when we're thinking about our younger kids that are, you know, maybe going to a practice one or two days a week, I like to sort of start it really, really simple and thinking about, is my child getting in, you know, a snack before they're going to this practice? If they're given time to take in a snack at practice, you know, and getting in that nice, you know, whatever the next meal is, um, or, or a snack, if a meal is not going to be close after that practice, but the bottom line is the more active a child is and the more, you know, in those growth cycles, their energy needs are going to increase. There's actually, I'm happy to send this to you guys that, you know, if you want to put it on um, social media or anything, but there's, there's this really great model that I use with a lot of kids because it's very visual. I mean, I'm a visual learner, but I know a lot of kids respond well to that too, but it's called the athlete's plate. And it is like mm. a three plate model that basically shows the more active someone is, if they're you know, working out for an hour or two hours, or I mean, hopefully young kids are not working out for two or three hours a day. That would probably not be recommended, but um, it shows that actually like a lot of times carbohydrate tends to be the portion of the plate that does increase more because that's that primary fuel source that, that our bodies are using when we're active in sports. So the more active someone gets, the more of that plate, that balanced plate that should still include protein and a fruit or a veggie, um, and fat sources, but that the carbohydrate component will increase based on the amount of activity and growth stage too, not just activity. How does this intersect with intuitive eating? I'm curious, one, just to hear your initial thoughts. And two, I'm thinking about a client of mine who had been a very competitive swimmer. And we sort of identified that their swimming schedule, and this was at the collegiate level, so it was very intense, but that the way in which fueling had to sort of happen, it sort of pulled them away from their kind of intuitive eater, like capacity to even recognize hunger and fullness cues, because there was sort of a need to, you know, work out a ton and then sort of eat when you could and not necessarily based on this sort of intuition. And so as I hear you describe these these visual like athletes plates, which I totally want that visual and sh to share that, but since we do talk so much about raising intuitive eaters here, just how these things intersect and if it's complicated or if, if it's not, yeah. It's an excellent question because it's one that I do get a lot because they're also – especially at really high level, like you were describing, Zoe, like this is someone who's was a collegiate swimmer. So they're swimming sometimes twice a day. They're, you know, they're, they might be training four hours a day. Um, that's kind of a normal thing for a competitive collegiate athlete. So a lot of the time, yes, it is hard to just follow an intuitive cue because exercise can mm. also have an appetite suppressing effect. And, and even actually beyond that, before I continue with that thought, 
if an athlete is in this low energy availability state, they're in an energy deficit, one of the ways that your body sort of quote unquote protects itself, right? Our body's always trying to, to protect itself is it will actually suppress the metabolic rate in order to conserve calories. So if your body knows that it is, I always, I compare this to like an iPhone battery with with a lot of my athletes, you know, if your phone is on, has a low battery and let's say you forgot your charger that day, right? You're going to slip your phone into a low, low power mode so that it doesn't use energy as much, right? It sort of conserves. So your body kind of does the same thing. It slows down. And when a metabolic rate is suppressed, you are not going to get the same hunger cues. So a lot of times it is very much about helping an athlete. I work on schedules with my athletes, understanding, you know, if you're not able to go to the dining hall during this time, like we need to be bringing, like I tell probably every single, unless they're allergic, like every single one of my athletes and especially collegiate athletes, keep a loaf of bread and a thing of peanut butter in your room because that's a great snack. You know, you can make a PB and J and just throw it in your backpack because yeah, you can't just rely, especially at those higher levels. I would almost say it's venture to say it's almost impossible to just listen to intuitive cues at that point. What do you see happening when someone is in low energy availability? What are the signs? Sure. Again, something I can, I'm happy to share with you guys. There's this whole model that's called relative energy deficiency in sport. And it is, you know, most people are familiar with the, the female athlete triad, which was that link, that interconnectivity between caloric intake, bone health, and menstrual functioning. So it was previously just looked at in females and just looked at in, in bones and in the menstrual system. But um, and basically, if someone's in a caloric deficit, they typically will lose their menstrual cycle and that will have a negative impact on bone building. But there is this whole other syndrome now known as REDS or relative energy deficiency in sport, which also applies to males, which I think is really important. But it shows that being in an energy deficit affects pretty much every system in the body. So, um, and they're these kind of cool, I always think they look like spaceship kind of designs that show the connectivity of an energy deficit to all these different systems in the body. So first of all, we we typically recommend that a female um, get their menstrual period before about 15 and a half. If it's after 15 and a half, you should typically consult a doctor because you could be impacting bone health and you might be in a caloric deficit. So skipped or missed periods for female athletes can certainly be a sign that someone's in a deficit. Bone stress injuries, uh, so stress fractures or stress reactions could show that the bones are not getting what they need. So we see a lot of those in energy deficit. And sort of some simpler things is just excess fatigue, right? We all get tired. We've all got a lot going on. But when it sort of hits that excess level or, you you know, your child looks pale, they might be uh, struggling with some anemia or something like that. Even mood changes, uh, we see depression, we see irritability, trouble with concentration or coordination, things like impaired judgment. But really, if you have a kid also that's getting sick a lot or injured a lot, and of course, ruling out anything else, but and a suppressed immune system is also uh, a side effect of being in an energy deficit. And again, I mentioned before, sorry, I could go on for days with this question, but the growth and development, so kids falling off of a growth chart, um, plateauing, and sometimes gastrointestinal distress can actually be a sign that your digestive system is slowing down a bit again to conserve energy. So um, there's a whole host of things, as, as you could see. How do you navigate this with 
the real value placed on energy deficit. You know, I'm thinking about teenage girls, for example, who are trying to sort out body image and navigate all the diet culture and trying to be healthier. I I have a client right now who's actually a a young man, um, a young boy, 15, and he's, you know, starting to mess with all of his food intake because he's going to the gym and trying to build muscle. And there's all this Instagram, you know, well, you could just, you know, you could get that definition in your in your arms if you eat more protein and less carbohydrates or whatever. And just how do you navigate that as a clinician? I think some parents kind of don't know what to do there because it's so well hidden, you know, like, oh, I'm just trying to be healthier um, as a your teenager saying that to you, but you being really suspicious and then they get to your office and how do you actually work with the kid? Sure. Gosh, so, social media has really added an extra challenge um, <laughs> to our work, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think especially around, you're right, with with the, you know, it's we're inundated with it, right? Change your body, do this, you know, this fitness challenge or that one or don't eat this and eat that. I mean, it's so overwhelming. We can imagine these, especially these impressionable adolescents that just, you know, they're, again, like you said, they're in this search for, for body image and body confidence. And it is tricky. I work closely. Obviously, I, I encourage my patients all to be working with, with a mental health counselor as well, because I really think that partnership really becomes key, especially around the body image work. But as far as what I do, I mean, education is is one of the biggest things that, that I really try to hit home in my office. So, you know, when you really give someone the information and the education. Obviously, it it is at a level that is appropriate for however old the client is. But really, I mean, I think that's kind of the interesting fact about kind of my unique juxtaposition of being an eating disorder specialist and also being a sports dietitian is I have that lens, that sports lens to really speak through. So a lot of times it's really hitting home for these athletes, some of the science, again, on an appropriate education level, depending on the age, but really helping a client understand like, well, what does our body actually do with a carbohydrate? What does our body actually do with a protein? And if you're low in carbohydrates, your body actually can't build muscle because it, it needs the carbs to run the cycle that builds the muscle. So it's giving them some of that science. And really, I do talk a lot about these ideas of the caloric deficit. And I show them that I literally will walk through this model that I've, that I've described with them and show them these are all the potential negative effects on your body and performance more specifically. And that muscle building is not going to happen if you're not getting the right balance of food, which includes carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. So I would say education and myth busting. And I'll name that in a room. Like I will name what they're reading online and like the fad diets that are out there. And like, I'll talk about them and, and I'll explain why these things are not valid. So that's, and I find it's a pretty good approach. Yeah. I feel like you're the, you know, you're, you're in the perfect position to do that most, most effectively. I notice, you know, I notice in my, well, you know, you work in a, in a, a sports nutrition department, like you, I found, with my kids, even this this one client I'm working with, like he really needs to talk to a you because there's only so much mm-hmm. that even though I know, like I know the basics of this information, it just doesn't occur to him as a myth still. It occurs to him as like, I just don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think that these sort of terms like performance nutrition or sports nutrition, 
people bring all sorts of ideas to those titles. And so since you're sort of on the myth-busting journey right now with us, are there any other misconceptions that about sports nutrition that you could point out and just keep debunking for parents listening? Oh, yeah, that's a that is a huge question. So, yeah, so I do get a lot of questions about, you know, the way protein powders and now I feel like there's a big push for some more of these like vegan powders and things like that, which I'll address in a minute too. But I think I'm a food first dietitian and I, and then most of these, what these supplements contain, I mean, you're running, you're running more of a risk. The more you go to supplements and powders, they're expensive. A B most of the things in them, the natural ingredients you can obtain from food. Like leucine is one of the amino acids that is most responsible for muscle building. And guess what? That's in huge amounts in dairy products. And if you're eating a dairy product, now you're also getting calcium. You're getting that idea of like, I'm eating something and I'm actually feeling like full or satiated. Um, Whereas drinking things can sometimes uh, not have the same effect as actually eating something. There are instances I will say that I once in a while will use something such as like a whey protein if an athlete is really struggling. You know, if there's a certain, um, if they have a lot of allergies or dietary restrictions or there are instances where a whey protein can be very safe, but it's not my go-to. And I'm not usually saying when these kids come in like, yeah, sweet, let's go buy all these powders. And I get this question more from males. Mm -hmm. They are trying to build muscle and sometimes they're just not at the stage of growth. Like um, physicians use tanner staging to determine where someone is, you know, along the journey, you know, through puberty. And some of these young males, you know, they're just not there yet and they're getting frustrated. So they're turning to all these powders and supplements and, but it's, it's a real risk because a lot of the time they just honestly have to just wait a bit till their, their body's own natural testosterone levels start to increase. So, and even then, you know, going back to that sort of unique, size diversity thing. Like some males are just never going to have that look. And it's not because they did anything wrong. It's literally just because that's their genetic makeup. And in order to have that, you'd have to be pretty damaging. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. But yeah, I'm always pushing food first. Again, that philosophy of like all foods fit in the diet, because I think in sports nutrition, like I think people have this misconception that athletes eat this sort of like perfect diet and, you know, whatever that even means. And, you know, that is definitely something I, I try to debunk. I don't know why people hate on carbohydrates so much. Really, it's, it's offensive, honestly. <laughs> but there, people are always trying to get rid of carbohydrates, like the keto diet or, you know, the, uh, the paleo diet. Like it's always something. And every ounce of research continues to point to the fact that we need carbohydrates for survival. Do we need them in varying amounts, maybe at different life stages? And but especially when you are talking about children, teenagers, adolescents, athletes, these are growing bodies that have high energy needs. If you're cutting out a food group, like I always say the only reason to cut out a food group is if you have an allergy to it. Otherwise, I do not believe in any restricting of any food group because there's no health benefit, right? So like gluten-free is another one. People always say that, oh, I, I came off gluten because it's inflammatory in my body as an athlete. Well, the research behind that says, no, it is only an inflammatory substance in the body if you are allergic to it. Mm-hmm. Or so if you have a celiac disease or a non-celiac gluten intolerance, and in those cases, you should absolutely not eat gluten. Again, that is something your body cannot tolerate. 
So I think the gluten-free diet offers no performance advantage. And I spoke at this at a Harvard Sports Med conference two years ago, sort of, I did a whole talk on debunking diet myths and athletes. So I've done a lit review of it and, and no. So gluten-free diets, no benefit. I think vegan diets, if I can speak to that for a second too, I think is really something that's become very big in our culture. A lot of times for, for kids, for adolescents, these diets lack a lot of essential nutrients. So a lot of times when you have these growing kids that just need, they're just like absorbing vitamins like a sponge, right? It becomes very difficult to meet those growing needs when again, you're, you're cutting something out of the diet. Of course, if it's for religious reasons, I've certainly worked with with clients that maybe follow a vegetarian diet. The family is vegetarian. Um, we can certainly work around that. A vegetarian diet is easier to accommodate than a vegan diet, I would say. I'm hearing you say that when it comes to sports nutrition, it's important for parents or, and all consumers to understand that this is, you know, a good sports nutritionist is not going to sell you a diet that actually... If anything, you're going to be able to use that platform, hopefully, like because you've got that knowledge base to hopefully say, yes, still food first, carbs are not bad, and it's far more important to get enough nutrition than it is to sort of get, you know, suppressed nutrition. And I, I'm curious, maybe listeners can let us know what kind of misconceptions they might have had or when people you know, here, sports nutrition, performance nutrition, what do they think? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things that you mentioned that I think is something that is a myth, if you're if you're a young female athlete, mm -hmm. you may not get your period and that's okay. That's still running rampant. That's very rampant. So I'm just wondering, I know that you probably address this all the time. So maybe you could just like, just debunk that quickly. That's a really important one. Um, and I think what we're seeing, yeah. So a female athlete, like if they're not getting their period, again, there's always, there can always be an underlying medical condition. So you should certainly, you know, seek uh, a consultation with either an endocrinologist or your, your primary care physician, because there can be other conditions that cause delayed menarche or skipped or missed periods. But really what that typically is, again, thinking about the body going to that low energy conservation state, you know, I, I always like to, I have to tip my hat to, to Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani because she does such a beautiful job of explaining this, but you know, that sort of caveman brain. So if a mm -hmm. body was in a place where it's not able to have enough nutrition for itself, the body would not be in a place to get pregnant. You know, if we think about our bodies in the primitive state, it's almost easier to explain things sometimes. So a period will not be possible because the body is not a place to support life. So again, that's a very primitive way of explaining it. But the, the way of thinking of it is, yeah, your body is in conservation mode. It does not have enough energy to support all the systems kind of firing on all eight cylinders, so to speak. So it's shutting things down. So a shutdown period means there's also going to be likely, you're also negatively impacting bone density. So female athletes um, build bone density, so thickness until about age 22, males until about age 26, not just athletes, all people, I should say that. So if someone is not getting a cycle, that is negatively impacting bone building. And I should further say that going on a birth control pill is not getting an athlete's period back. It is putting a Band-Aid on the problem and it does not help with bone building. So really the work to be done is you can certainly rule out that an athlete you know, doesn't have a condition like a PCOS or something like that that could be causing a missed period. But putting them on the birth control pill, which has been done for years and years and years, is actually not a treatment for it. It is getting the body back in an energy balance and then the period will naturally restore. I'm glad we we, yeah. we had you cover that. 
we could go on and on and <laughs> with you in particular, Laura. But we want to just wrap up and, and ask you what we ask all of our amazing guests. If each listener took away from this episode and did just one thing on the regular to help their children fully bloom, what would you hope they do? Yeah. Well, I think around the sports piece and the nutrition piece, I think it's like, make sure your kids are having fun. Sports should be fun, right? I mean, when I think back on my days as a youth athlete, like that's what it was for me, right? It was going to see my friends and having a good time and, you know, all those positive things I spoke about. So I think really being careful. I think when I see a lot more issues with kids and the food and around these sports is like when they're being pressured into these really elite programs at a young age. And and I really think like, make sure your kids are having fun. And if they're not enjoying something, maybe they want to do something else, right? And kids don't have to play sports either, right? You know, maybe your kid has interests in other areas, but I, I really think it's like, it's make it fun. That's kind of my big takeaway. I love it. I love it. That's we're we're big on that yeah. too with the movement. And and please don't make your child do a sport they don't like. If they like archery versus um, basketball, <laughs> go for it. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's Olympic okay. sport too. Hey, no, I'm only kidding though. <laughs> but yeah, have fun, right? Explore. That's what childhood is about. It's about opening your eyes and exploring and trying new things. And you're not going to like all of them. So try something new. So I think that's a big important point. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Such a treat. So great to be on with you guys as always. So Zoe, what'd you think about that conversation with Laura? I love Laura. I love just chatting with her. And I, it was just incredibly helpful to think a little bit more about these myths. And I'm glad we got a little bit more airtime dedicated towards that horrible myth about the loss of the period as though that's somehow just like a normal side effect of athletics. But, you know, I also think just about those early years as the parent of super young kids and how on one hand we do, we want our kids to just have fun. And I love that that's her parting message, that just to prioritize the, the fun factor. It does make me think a little bit about something I sometimes struggle with, like when my kid is are telling me they don't want to do something. And I know a lot of parents relate, like, how far do you push them when it may be a matter of, like, just pushing them into their comfort zone versus pushing them into something that they just don't want to do? Like, listening to your child's intuitive sense, but also if you have a kid that's a little slow to warm or is easily discouraged and needs a little bit of time to get comfortable, it just made me think that that's a dimension here that – it's not always so clear. Yeah, no, it's not. You know, and my kids right now are five and six, and we're trying to figure out this kind of spring semester of after-school activities. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> and uh, it's one of those – I noticed in my mind the other day thinking, is it okay if they want to do something different than they've done, or is it better for them to – continue with the class that they were on this semester because then they like build mastery and you know have continuation and I'm just left you know with Laura's parting words which is make sure to have fun and also something was that was embedded in the conversation that we didn't really talk about which was the recommendation not to get them specialized Mm -hmm. um so my takeaway is I'm going to just do what my kids want Mm -hmm. um meaning like I'm gonna let them pick whatever they Mm -hmm. want And I'm going to really try to keep 
fostering the fun. Mm-hmm. Me too. And I actually, it's comforting to hear that you're going through that same thing too because we're at the same crossroads. And if a kid was able to stick out a new activity for a whole semester and they're saying, I'd like to try something else, that's not quite the same as going twice and saying, I don't want to go back. And so I think I'm also going to honor that request to try something new and foster the fun factor. I also think about before specialized sports, when we were growing up, although you're a different case than I am, it was like soccer in the fall, basketball Mm. in the winter, for me snowboarding because I I didn't want to do basketball once I realized five feet tall is just (laughs) not going to (laughs) work. Um... I liked playing basketball, but I didn't like actual, actually the game. You just part needed of it, a, a, a smaller scale. Uh, right, like a right. Shorter, I needed like, the five foot club, <laughs> the five foot league. <laughs> the, the, like peewee basketball. Right. <laughs> T ball. Yeah. Um, you know, and that was just, that's what we did all through high school. It was not the same thing all year long. Yeah. And why would I? want to put that on my five and six year old right now so it's totally normal for them to be like let's do ice skating Mm -hmm. although I got to be careful of the figure skating but I don't don't think we'll get that far (laughs) hopefully not I'll sabotage it somehow (laughs) oh gosh well that's its own and maybe maybe somebody listening will write in a question about that for next season because those are very real issues like when you have a child like I was one of them who was really dedicated to the pursuit of ballet and so many risks there but that's a, how to actually have those conversations. That could totally be an episode, just to how to effectively have complicated conversations and how do you toe that line between fostering your child's interests and also keeping them safe. Like, these are not easy conversations to have. No, they're not. They are not. So maybe a future show, if one of you listening wants to hear that, write in, um, become a patron so that you can get that question answered and we can do the behind-the-scenes research to find mm-hmm. the the best expert to answer that question but that's our show that's our show we'd love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this particular episode so please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com and as always if you like what you're hearing we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on itunes so more people can find the podcast And please, as we mentioned earlier, consider becoming a patron of the podcast by visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so we can continue producing and delivering this content to you. Thanks for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom. Mm